The Apostle Paul's first sermon was certainly a paradigm for good gospel preaching. We shouldn't find that uh, as something that wouldn't be the case because we know the kind of salvation experience that Paul had on the road to Damascus. We would call it, uh, it's where we coined the phrase, Damascus Road Experience. And some of us certainly had that kind of salvation experience where it was just totally out of the blue. You were not, uh, it was kind of, you came out of a testimony where you were a hundred miles an hour away from God and all of a sudden he convicts your heart and draws you to himself. And so we would expect nothing less than the great apostle to preach on the power of the gospel to change lives. If you remember last week, we talked about the first part of his sermon and what he does is chronicle for us the redemptive history of Israel. And what's in there working it all the way through is the magnificent, marvelous, amazing grace of God. Right? He is going after a rebellious, recalcitrant people and drawing them into himself and showing them grace even in their rebellion. And then he makes a bridge today from that redemptive history in the Old Testament and he brings it over to what we might just call the story of Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? And really all the way through the Old Testament it's still the story of Jesus Christ. But here Paul is going to make a, Luke makes a transition in Paul's sermon to teach us about the promise being the Lord Jesus Christ. So the second part of the sermon, 26 through 37, is the story of Jesus Christ. We may say that it's really a recapitulation of Israel's history. Why is that? Because God was extending His grace all the way through the Old Testament and in typology pointing to Jesus Christ. But then when we get to the actual story of Jesus, it's still Israel's history. Here's the difference. This time the story is successful and all the glory rebounds to God. Right? That's what's so encouraging about what Jesus fulfills. And since we're in this season, and I told you I'm excited about this, that we're preaching through Acts and we get to this section and we're able to think about the fulfillment of the death and resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us. We find ourselves on the 18th, 25th, and April 1st, being able to study uh, the cross and the resurrection. And this is what we find in this particular teaching today. Remember where we left off? It was verse 26. So the next three weeks, we're going to talk about fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today is part one. Next week will be part two. And then Easter Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday, April 1st, we will deal with the resurrection. So beginning in verse 26, that's where we ended off last week. And we see this verse 26. Let's read down through verse 29. The Bible says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers... Because they did not recognize him, nor understood the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them, 
every Sabbath fulfilled them by condemning him. In other words, they fulfilled the prophets in Jerusalem. They fulfilled the prophets by what they did with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, in the synagogue, you had the reading of the Pentateuch every Sabbath, which would have been something read out of the first five books of the, of the Bible. Normally, it would probably be the Decalogue, which is in Deuteronomy. And then you would have readings from the prophets. And Paul's emphasis is they're read every day in this, on the Sabbath. And they told you that Jesus Christ was the promise, that it was going to be fulfilled in him. But yet, he is now telling them that they did not recognize him. Verse 28, And though they found, him, found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried him out, when they had carried out all that was written of him, notice that, all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now, I'm excited about reading verse 30, aren't you? But we're not going to do that till April 1st, okay? We're going to pause right there. And again, one old preacher said, never leave him in the grave because he's not there. So I'll go ahead and tell you, he doesn't live in the grave, right? He is, he is resurrected, and he is gloriously resurrected. But we're going to stop there today in the reading. Again, Paul will conclude his sermon in verses 38 through 41, and there's going to be some direct gospel application and the application is if you trust Christ in faith and believe in him you're forgiven of your sins the flip side of that is if you reject Jesus Christ it's eternal condemnation so he's going to make that great application we're going to move there eventually but now he says in verse 26 brothers and sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God remember he's speaking in the synagogue to those who have Abraham's blood coursing through their veins He's talking to true Jews, and then he's also talking, or Hebrews, and he's also talking to those Gentiles who have trusted and or put their faith, not salvifically, but they put their faith in an understanding that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only God. And these are God-fearers. So he addresses both of them, and he drives the point home the first point of the sermon with laser accuracy. The message has been sent to us. Can't get any better application than that, can we? Just think about that. We dwelt on it some last week. But that's the culmination of it all. It is God has sent this message to us. And that's what good preaching does. Uh, it reminds us of exactly what the Word says. The message has been sent to us. If you leave out of this place and you don't feel like the preacher has been speaking to you, then perhaps uh, you haven't listened too well, or the intended purpose of the sermon hasn't hit you in the heart, but you ought to be able to leave this place and say, man, it was meant for me. The preacher was speaking directly to me, and most of you would say that all the time. Preacher, you're talking directly to me, and I get that, because before I speak directly to you, God has been using the message to speak directly to my heart, and if it hasn't affected me how can I expect it to affect you? But this was a great sermon. And again, that emphasis, it was sent to us. The very Logos word. Remember, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word is the eternal Logos, meaning the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, was sent to us. And that's the best part of the good news of the gospel. Amen? 
that it's been sent to us. Galatians 4.4. When we see the gospel has been sent, there's at least two things we think of. Galatians 4.4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born under the law, that those who are under the law might be saved, brought to Him. So we know that part in the sending. So we may say in the sending of the Son, the gospel was sent. It was when He was sent in flesh. But there's a flip side of that. And that's that the gospel, the word of God, is going out. You understand there's two, uh, two aspects of this. He was sent to us, but also we are called, or the word is being sent out. In other words, as Paul preached this message this day, the gospel was going out. The message was being sent. It's an awesome privilege to be able to say that the gospel has been sent to us. And folks, I can't... Remind you enough that it's an amazing privilege, distinct privilege, for our country to have been under the sound of the gospel for nearly 300 years. That we've been able to hear the gospel for close to 300 years. And the reminder is that there are people all over this world who have not even heard the gospel once. You have a distinct blessing, but you also have a distinct responsibility to believe it and spread it to the ends of the earth. Because you've been given the gospel. We should never get over the astonishment. We will remember, right? Like the song, we should never get over the astonishment that we were able to hear the message of the gospel. Do you think what he says in 27 through 29 would have grabbed their attention? Now he begins to say to those living in Antioch that were full 100% Jews and then all those who were Gentiles... That the gospel, that what happened in Jerusalem, the leaders and the Jerusalemites, by their ignorance, they fulfilled the voices of all the prophets in the Old Testament. The people sitting there that day would have wondered, now if the message of salvation has come to Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of all of our religious activity, how in the world is it that we haven't heard this already? Wouldn't that be a, a question that one of those rabbis or one of the temple dwellers, whoever's in the temple, I mean in the synagogue there in Antioch would have said, you know, if, if that's the case and it's been sent and it went to Jerusalem, how could we have missed it? And what is the writer, what is Paul saying? Well, it's the apostasy of those Jewish leaders that they rejected Jesus Christ. In other words, like Jeremiah would say, Jeremiah was preaching to those recalcitrant recalcitrant people, right? For 40 years, he preached the word and didn't have one single convert. And Jeremiah tells the people on different occasions that your defiance toward God is just as bad as the nations that don't know God. And so he's reminding them of that. And here is Jerusalem again, the Israelites. Uh, they've been recalcitrant people and rebellious all the way through their history. And here they are again when God sends the very Son to them in their ignorance. They do not hear the voices of the prophets. So they have what's called culpable ignorance. They've heard it every single Sabbath. And they have not rejected, they have not accepted Christ. Therefore they rejected Him. Now if he was reading from the prophets, is there a guess where... Paul, or where uh, they may have read in the, in the synagogues every Sabbath? 
Is there a text of Scripture that we might go to? How about Isaiah 53? Listen to this. Who has believed what has heard? What, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us our peace. And by his stripes we have been healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You think that was read in the synagogue? You better believe it. Isaiah 53. And it was read over and over again. And so they were carrying out all that was written. The Jerusalemites were carrying this out. They unjustly delivered him to Pilate. According to our passage to be killed. All that was written of him was accomplished. Isaiah 53, 7 through 8 continues what Paul is saying in this passage. Listen to 7 and 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Where did this happen? That's exactly right, before Pilate. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that, that's before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. So Paul, in a lot of ways, is tracking with his terminology what we find in Isaiah 53. You do know that Isaiah wrote that 700 years before the time of Christ. There are no accidents with the Lord. This was prophecy. And in the Bible, you know, usually says cross. But at this point... It says that he was hung upon a tree. We're going to unpack that. There's a reason for it. Remember, all lines in this sermon are connecting with the Old Testament. There are no accidental events in Christ's entire passion. It is fulfillment of the Old Testament promise. Why does Luke say tree? Or why does Paul say tree in his sermon? Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. Verse 22, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. Now you're looking into the heart of the gospel, folks. A cursed, a man that is crucified and hanged is cursed by God. This Messiah would be a crucified Messiah who would bear the curse of the law on our behalf and he would be identified by being nailed to a tree. And folks, this was the ultimate covenant curse. Paul is going to appeal to this uh, phrase, the tree, when you get over to Galatians chapter 3. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to teach you that as we're putting on the pause button here. Until next Sunday, we're going to talk about uh, the curse that he bore for you. So the cross to the Gentile was foolishness. But the cross to the Jew is a stumbling block. They could not fathom a crucified Messiah. Why? Because of Deuteronomy 
21. Once again, in Isaiah 53, Paul would say in his sermon that they placed him in a tomb. Listen to Isaiah 53, 9. The Bible says, And and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Again, no accidents in the unfolding of his sermon and is reminding us of that. This is how redemptive history comes to its consummation. All of history turns on the axis of the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Not just Christian history, but all of history turns on that axis. Now again, we're going to talk about being cursed or hanged on a tree. But when you contemplate the suffering of Jesus Christ, what do you see? If we're going to pause and think about the cross, and in Paul's preaching, when you pause and think about it, what do you see? What do you think about when you think about the cross of Christ? Was Jesus just some kind of political revolutionary that Rome wisely extinguished before his flame began to burn out of control? Did he simply suffer the misfortune of ticking off the religious leaders and in envy uh, they appealed to the political expediency of Pilate, and so Pilate just kind of helped get rid of him? Is that what we see at the cross? Or is he actually the sinless Son of God, the God-man, who suffered in our place, took the beating that we deserved, died the death that you deserved? Mark chapter 15. It is early Friday morning, as we reckon time. Our Lord has been betrayed abandoned, interrogated, beaten, spit upon, and denied. Within hours, he will be beaten nearly to death by Roman scourging and crucified where he will die somewhere around 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon. Mark 15 is simultaneously one of the most shameful chapters you will ever read in the Bible, but at the same time, one of the most wonderful chapters that you will ever read in the Bible. What sinful man did to the Son of God can only make us weep. But what the Son of God did for sinners like me and you on the cross can make us shout for joy. It is an awesome chapter of Scripture. So we need to know what the crucifixion of Christ was all about. Just listen to these words. Mark chapter 15 verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthana, which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? By the way, that's also a direct fulfillment from uh, Psalm 22. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. I want you to think about five things this morning before we leave. Number one, the crucifixion of Christ was public. Write it down. It did not happen in a corner. It was not mythological. It is historical and public. Even all of your extra-biblical writers, meaning people who were not Christians, we're not talking about what the Bible says, 
But even extra-biblical writers and historians like Eusebius and Josephus chronicle that Jesus Christ died on the cross. This is public. Crowds saw it. Again, secular historians of the earliest centuries treated the death of Jesus as historical. Romans 3 says that God set him forth. He was not in a room or in a prison somewhere. He was executed publicly. He was crucified for all to see. He was crucified before the eyes of the entire world. It was public. Second, his crucifixion was painful. Roman scourging was terrifying punishment. The delinquent, get a picture of this, was stripped, bound to a post or a pillar, and was beaten by a number of guards until his flesh hung like bleeding shreds. The flagellum was that instrument that had the leather straps, and on the end of it, it consisted of of, of thongs that were plated with several pieces of bone and lead to form a chain. No maximum number of strokes was ever prescribed by Roman law, but men frequently collapsed and died just simply from being flogged. Many reveal in history how those being scourged had their entrails visible for all to see. Next, they placed a military cloak on Christ. They twisted a crown of thorns and pressed it down on our Savior's head. They hit Him with a reed stick used as a mock scepter. They spit on Him. On the cross, the swelling around the rough nails driven into His hands and feet and torn lacerated tendons caused excruciating pain. Can you imagine an old Roman nail? The arteries of His head and stomach would have been surcharged with blood and a terrific headache would have ensued. The mind was often confused among those who were crucified, and they were filled with anxiety and dread. As the old adage is, the victim of crucifixion literally died a thousand deaths. The length of the crucifixion upon the cross was wholly determined by the constitution physically of the victim. But rarely did death ensue before 36 hours. The death was public. It was painful. But it was planned by God. Don't forget that. The Son of Man, Jesus said, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They're going to kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day. That came from the mouth of Jesus. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. Why did God do this? This was His plan. Acts 2.23. Is that familiar? In this book, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then he says to the Jewish people, but you crucified him and killed him with the hands of lawless men. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. It was planned by God. It wasn't accidental. Everything that happened in Jerusalem cross and resurrection was all foretold and planned by God in the Old Testament. Every single bit of it. Number four, it was punishment for our sin. You know, folks, he did not die for his own sin, but ours. The Son of God, eternal, uncreated, divine Son, lived a perfect life and then died for sinners. Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26, I like to call... The innermost meaning of the cross. Have you ever read this section? 
Listen to it. But now the, tri- now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That sounds like Paul's preaching, right? Because Paul's writing this book. Okay, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Do you see this is the inner meaning of the cross? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Do you know that the cross is a picture of the very righteousness of God? That's why He put Him forward. Because in His divine forbearance He had passed over the former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. What an awesome passage of Scripture. You know, righteousness, I've talked about the reason Jesus died on Calvary was to display righteousness and be able to give you His righteousness. And so when you get to Romans 3, 21 through 26, it is the innermost meaning of the cross. What does it mean to speak of righteousness? Well, first it speaks of God's character. That's who He is. God is absolutely holy. He is righteous. He knows no sin. Morally, absolutely perfect. But He is holy and righteous. But it also speaks of God's activity. Everything our God does is righteous. Every act, every deed. The way He governs this world is righteous. So it's the character of God. It's the activity of God. But righteousness can also be defined as a gift from God. Did y'all see it in Romans 3? It is a status or a state that our God gives freely and imputes it to people by grace alone. That's what God does. And that's what creates the dilemma. We ask ourselves, why did Jesus die on the cross? Could He not have done it a different way? Could He have not saved us in a different way? The answer to that is no, He could not have. Why? Because there's a dilemma. How can God be righteous and do righteous and give the gift of righteousness to people who are sinful? Now folks, you need to listen. If you've never listened to this church, you better listen today. Why is it? Well, God is righteous. He does everything righteously. And he gives, give, God, he gives His gift of righteousness. You cannot obtain this gift by the works of the law. It is only given to those who believe. Why does God give His righteousness to those who believe? And why can't we work for it? Why would He not give it to someone who works real hard and does everything they're supposed to do? Well, God must save in a way that's consistent with His righteousness. He must save in a way that's consistent with His glory. This means that a man or a woman working for their salvation robs God of His glory. If you could work in order to be saved, cross all the T's, dot all the I's. If you could do it all in order to make you think you've obeyed it all and God would have to show favor and save you, then you would rob God of His glory. The one who is trusted gets the glory. The giver of salvation gets the glory. A works-based salvation robs God of His glory. Righteousness is a free gift, and it honors the one who gives the gift. 
So there is no distinctions. You know, we were reading through that and it says, well, there's no distinction. What does that mean? Well, there's no distinction that we're all sinners in here and we've fallen short of God's glory. But there's also no distinction in the way that God saves. He saves everybody by grace through faith. That's the only way that you can be saved. So when we don't treasure God's glory, sometimes we look at that. Well, what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? Why is that such a big deal? It's a big deal because we don't realize the heinousness of falling short of God's glory. When we don't treasure God's glory, that's high treason against the king of glory. It's high treason against him. Please note the word justified. Did you see it in the middle of the passage of Romans? That, means, and that doesn't mean an inward transformation. Note that word justification. Here we are. Glory trampling sinners. That's who we are. How can God be righteous and declare glory trampling sinners righteous? How can He be both just and the justifier of men? How can He be a God of righteousness and give righteousness to us in His activity and Him remain both just and righteous? Well... How can God be righteous and declare the guilty righteous? That's like saying, how can a square peg fit in a round hole? When you truly understand the glory of God, that's exactly what's going on. So God declares us righteous, folks, because of Jesus. You can't be declared righteous apart from Jesus Christ. Again, the word justified doesn't mean an inward transformation. Of course, we know that that happens when you trust Christ. You are inwardly transformed. But the root meaning meaning of the word justified means to declare that you have been acquitted from all your crimes and you're now being treated as one who has perfectly obeyed the law even though you have not. Isn't that awesome? You could never perform the law. You could never do it perfectly. But Jesus did. And when you have Christ... God looks at you as someone who has perfectly obeyed the law 100%. That's amazing. That's the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the kicker. It's given freely as a gift through faith. And that's where humanity struggles, right? We want to work for it. We want the glory to go to us because we did this. It's impossible. By the works of the law will no man ever be justified can't be justified by the works of the law. You have kept the law perfectly if you're in Christ. That's good. You can't be saved unless you have kept the law perfectly. But Jesus did. And you couldn't. And when you trust Him by grace through faith and trust that gift of righteousness, then you're birthed into the family of God. And when God looks at you, you've obeyed perfectly. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. Oh, how important the cross is for us. We've honored His glory perfectly through Christ. Listen, if you fall short of the glory of God, how can you honor the glory of God? You can't unless you have Christ. When you fall short of the glory of God, the only way you can honor the glory of God ever is to honor Him by trusting Jesus as Lord. Then you fulfill everything that God gave us in the Old Testament. The reason He gave the law and the prophets was to point us to Jesus Christ. We've honored His glory perfectly through Christ. Would you not want it to be treated like that this morning? (laughs) 
it's amazing to me that people would want to walk out of here and not be treated this way. Not be given this gift by God so that you have perfectly obeyed the law of God because of Jesus Christ. An awesome understanding. The penalty for my treason has been paid. You say, well, that's strong. No, it's not. We are all guilty. Remember that? No distinction. You've all trampled on the glory of God. But God has forgiven you of your high treason. It cost the Son of God. He paid the ransom for our sins. God is love, right? But God is also just. He's a God of wrath. And He must judge sin. So He sets forth Christ. When Jesus Christ was suspended between heaven and earth on a crude Roman cross, He absorbed in His pure, righteous soul all the wrath from God that my sins deserved. And that is true for you too. He absorbed all the wrath that you deserved upon Himself. Any sinner can be safe from the righteousness of God and the justice of God by simply clinging to Jesus by grace through faith. Man, I tell you what, that's a gift that just keeps on giving. It does. It just keeps on giving. The Father is delighted to receive you and turn His wrath away. Justice is satisfied. And the cross was God's grand demonstration of not only His righteousness, but also His glory. I hope you never look at the cross the same way again. I hope you understand what that means. It was public. It was painful. It was planned by God. It was punishment for our sin. Here's the last one. His crucifixion is precious to those who believe. I want to, I want to believe because you're saying amen is precious to you. Well, you remember Billy Graham. Uh, Franklin said that in the latter days of his life that he sat in his chair and he contemplated. I will not boast on anything I've done. I will boast only in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that's a good way to go out, isn't it? In Galatians chapter 4, he said, of all the things we could boast in, 99 years of life, preaching the gospel to 2 point something billion people through radio and evangelism, Billy Graham ended his days thinking about, I've got to boast in the cross. Why? Because he knew that everything he had given to him spiritually came through the cross. You do realize that you wouldn't have any spiritual benefits today at all were it not for the cross of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.7 says, To you therefore who believe, He is precious. That is so true. Paul says, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember this, folks. Every benefit that you have as a believer is due to what Christ Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. By His death, we've been ransomed from sin and guilt and condemnation. Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. No condemnation and no hell. You know, it's in John 3.16, right? We don't, we don't preach it much. But there's clearly a danger in John 3.16. That if you don't trust Christ, you're going to perish. Perish means eternal spiritual torment in hell. So it's there. But if you're in Christ Jesus, you don't have to fear death. Why? Because the Father owns the property on both sides of the river. Right? You don't have to fear death because, I mean, folks, Paul said it. For to me to live is Christ and to die 
is gain, is to be with Jesus and give an eternal life. Those who come to me, I will give to them eternal life. Jesus suffered the injustice and insult that I should have suffered. He experienced the shame and pain that we should have all experienced. He bore our guilt. I should have borne that guilt. We should. But there is now, therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You remember during the trial, um, the people were screaming out, crucify him. Pilate put forth Barabbas, which name means son of some father. Didn't even know who he belonged to. But he's in jail because more than likely he was a Jewish zealot. He believed that the way that you get the Roman bondage off is to pull out the sword and kill people. So Barabbas is imprisoned, and they cry for Barabbas to be set free. One prisoner would be given pardon. And they cry that Jesus would be crucified. Now, think about that for a moment. If you were Barabbas, and you were sitting in that dark cell, no lights, wasn't like the prisons you have today, and all of a sudden, the Roman soldiers come down and say, Hey, Barabbas, today is your lucky day. Someone's actually dying for you in your place. I want you to think about that for a moment. Barabbas was the only person who could really ever say that Jesus Christ physically took his place on that day. But I want to tell you something. Spiritually, he took every one of our places. He died your death. He paid your penalty in order that you might be set free. One of my favorite hymns is Heaven Came Down. It's hymn 573 in the Baptist hymnal. It's written by John Peterson. Listen to this. Now I have a hope, this is verse 3, that will surely endure after the passing of time. I have a future in heaven for sure. There in those mansions sublime. And it's because of that wonderful day when at the cross I believed. Riches eternal and blessings supernal from his precious hand I received. And here's the course. Heaven came down. And glory filled my soul. When at the cross, my Savior made me whole. My sins were washed away. And my night was turned to day. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Father, we bow before you. And we think about the day that we were drawn to consider what you did on the cross. And understand that you bore the wrath of God on our behalf. That you turned it away. We read those words, Eloi, Eloi. Knowing full well that David said those words first, but Jesus uttered them on the cross because He understood the separation from the Father because of our sinfulness. God is so holy He cannot even look upon sin. And yet Jesus bore our sin. Such a way that he, he experienced the separation of, being, of becoming that curse for us. Because of our sin. God, help us to see the gospel today. God, help us to be a gospel-preaching church. That we live the gospel. We preach the gospel. We live and die by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, for that one wayward, we're all sinners, but for that one sinner who hasn't been justified, given that standing freely 
of having perfectly obeyed the law in Jesus. God, would you save that soul today before it's everlastingly too late? God, would you bring them, draw them toward you with grace and mercy. Let them see you for who you are. Let them see you for what you did on Calvary. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. We give you glory, Lord Jesus, for it. All honor and glory belongs to you. We boast not of works. We boast in the cross. For it is at the cross, at the cross, where we first saw the light. And the burden of our hearts rolled away. It was there by faith we received our sight. God, thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.